You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. Let's pray and let's get into tonight's lesson. This is I'm excited about tonight. We're uh, beginning a new series called A Better Covenant, and we're talking about uh, the blood covenant. So let's get into this. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, another opportunity to gather together with fellow believers around your word, Father. And I thank you, Lord, that your word, as we have always said and believe, your word is alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, Father, we look to the written Word of God for instruction, for for leadership, for guidance. And, Father, I thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he is the teacher. He is the one that brings revelation and insight. So we make ourselves available tonight to be taught by him. I thank you, Father, that uh, my mouth, my thoughts will be anointed to communicate your Word. And I thank you, Father. Every heart, every ear will be a receptive ear and heart, Lord, and I believe, Father, we're going to receive from you tonight, and we'll be better because of it. We believe you for it, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, turn in your Bibles with me to Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews, the eighth chapter, Hebrews chapter eight, and let's look at verses six and seven, Hebrews chapter eight verses six and seven. Uh, if you miss anything, all of the notes are online for you, so you can print them off and and follow along there. But Hebrews chapter eight, verses six and seven, and this is talking about the Lord Jesus. It says, but now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry in as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant which is was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now, what's interesting is in the Greek language, the word better uh, means this, that it, it's strong and it's benevolently better towards the recipient, meaning it, it's designed if I could say it this way, it's a better covenant because God did everything he did in it to benefit us. And so it's a it's a marvelous thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, one way to, I've heard a minister say this uh, one time, think of it in this light. You know, you might have a particular car that runs well, It you know, it, it's in great shape. It might only be a year old, but then the manufacturer comes out with a newer version, a better version of that same car the next year, you know, a redesign or whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, they're not putting out that new car saying, oh, well, that one was bad, so we're trying to replace it. No, they're saying the old one was good, but we're doing what we can to make the new one better for the people that will purchase it. So it's important to understand the old covenant was not done away with. And this is a, a maybe a little bit of a misbelief that Christians today have is that the, the old covenant, the Old Testament is no longer relevant. That absolutely is not true. What Jesus did when he came is he simply fulfilled the old covenant or the Old Testament, but it, it did not diminish its importance or its necessity. The Old Testament is not bad, and the the New Testament is good. That's the wrong way to look at it. The Old Testament was good, but the New Testament is better. Now, here's why one is good and the other is better. Uh, the, The Old Covenant was based on types and shadows of things to come. The New Covenant is based on actual things that have transpired. You know, the Old Testament is all about uh, the prophecies and things declaring that Jesus was coming, that the Messiah was coming, the Redeemer was coming. And then, of course, we know the defining moment in between the Old Testament and the New Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant was the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So 
He is the one that makes the difference between the two. So do not get it in your thinking that the two fight one another or one is less than the other. We need both of them. They both complement each other, but the new is better because of all that Jesus accomplished for us, and that is brought to bear in the new covenant. Okay, so, um, you know, I often say this at church, but I'm so glad that uh, the new covenant is in effect now, and God saw fit for us to be here now under the new covenant so that we don't uh, you know, once a year on the, at the Day of Atonement, we don't have to get on a plane, fly to Jerusalem, and go and offer sacrifices. You know, Jesus paid the price once and for all for everyone, so we're all able to receive from that. Now, I want to touch on some things uh, as we get into this that, um, that I, I want you to understand uh, as we talk about the old covenant and the new covenant, and and these things I have said before, but uh, it bears repeating, and that is this: you know, the Bible is not a Western book, meaning it was not invented in Europe, it was not invented in the United States. The Bible is an ancient Eastern book based on Eastern cultures. Okay, so you've got to take that into account. So it's very important as we study these things, I want to give you some, some things to help you understand and interpret the Bible accurately, okay? And I think a lot of times what, as we talked a few weeks ago in healing, talking about healing and the misunderstanding in the Old Testament about where it seems like there, there's two different, God has two different personalities, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. And part of that comes about because people try and, and translate and interpret the Bible uh, incorrectly and, and don't understand the correlation between the two, and then also don't understand some things about uh, ancient Hebrew culture. So we're going to look at some of those things. But the main thing that you can do, and really this goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation, but let's talk about the Old Testament for just a moment. When you're studying the Old Testament, if you will purely look for Jesus and Jesus only, uh, meaning all the things that, that were laid out for us in the Old Testament are laying the groundwork for the ministry of Jesus and what Jesus was going to accomplish in his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, I like to say it this way. I, I don't know if they're still popular today, but um, you know, my mother, when I, when my brother and I were young, uh, little boys, she had shadow pictures made of us where, um, or, and I think she might've actually done them where, uh, she traced our, the image of yeah. our face sideways and then cut it out in, in construction paper or something, and then had it framed. So you had a sideways, you know, profile of what we looked like and, uh, so this, uh, and I believe that they actually call those shadow pictures. Well, that's exactly what the Old Testament is. It's not the real thing. You can't point at that shadow picture and say, well, there's Brad. No, that's not Brad. That's just a shadow of Brad. That's just an image of Brad. And so the Old Testament is exactly that. It's not the Lord Jesus, but it's a shadow image of Jesus. And it is laying that out so we can begin to see Jesus, if you're looking for him. You know, Jesus actually told the, the religious leaders of his day, he said, you know, you go through, this is my paraphrasation, but he said, you go through the Old Testament looking at all the laws and regulations and so forth, and you miss it because what you should have been doing is looking for me. If you'd have been looking for me, you would have recognized me when I showed up. Okay, so uh, that's what he's looking for. So it's kind of neat because um, God has already been, you know, God is an eternal being. God has always been and God always will be. I heard Fred Price recently, um, you know, this was an old video of his, of course, he's gone home to be with the Lord now, but he was describing God as, as God is always now. You know, God has no past and God has no future because he is eternal. I know that's hard for us to wrap our brain around, uh, but so when he was dealing with mankind and was laying out the Old Testament, 
he was not thinking of future per se. He was thinking of himself and trying to relate that to mankind. You know, I heard a great illustration. If you, um, you know, if you've ever been to a parade, you know, the, I guess they still do the Thanksgiving parade downtown Charlotte. But if you've ever been to that and you're standing along Tryon Street and as all the floats and the bands are marching by, you know, you might be able to see uh, because of the crowd, maybe 100 yards in either way. So you can see a band or a float that might be coming and you can see a float or a band that just passed by you. But the way that that uh, and I heard this and, and I just thought it was awesome. The way to begin to wrap your brain around God as who he is, as an eternal being, is, is imagine this. If you could get in a helicopter and go up two or three miles in the air, you know, six, seven thousand uh, feet, you could see that entire parade from the beginning and the end at the same time. Well, that's the way God is, and that's the way God views time. That is the way that he relates to time. He's already been in the future, and he's already been in the past. And uh, so I say all that to say this, is when he was laying out the foundation in the Old Testament, that he was laying out what he desired to have show up at a certain appointment. You know, that you'll see phrases in the in the New Testament that God ordained or God appointed. And what God did is he went into the future, established what he wanted to show up at a given time, and then stepped back into the present and waited for that to show up. And so it's it's absolutely awesome. So this is how the Old Testament and the New Testament are tied together. They both tell the exact same story, okay? The Old Testament and the New Testament tell the exact same story. The Old Testament says that it is going to happen. The New Testament says that it did happen, but they're both conveying and communicating the same truth. Uh, You know, I said this uh, a few weeks ago in, in our series, Jesus the Healer, but St. Augustine uh, in the third and fourth century said this, the new, talking about the Bible, the new is in the Old Testament contained, but the old is by the new explained. Let me say that to you again. The new is in the Old Testament contained, but the old is by the new explained. Now, The reason I'm saying this is because this is very, very important for us to understand in order to properly interpret the Bible, okay? So the the Old Testament is just not, you know, a bunch of books that somebody put together that's a record of meaningless rituals and customs and places and names and unrelated events. And, And I know sometimes when you're reading through the Old Testament, it it can kind of seem that way, you know, particularly when you're trying to read through Deuteronomy and Leviticus and, and uh, you know, it's not always the most exciting stuff to read. But here's the thing that you have to constantly remind yourself of, and that is this. It's in there for a purpose, and God put it there. The Holy Spirit led men to write those things for our benefit. So, you know, maybe you, you you don't understand it all, or maybe it's not the most exciting thing, but just don't allow yourself to dismiss it in any way. So the Old Testament is an orderly, progressive, unfolding revelation from God of the blood covenant he entered with man through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so what that is saying is, is if you can get revelation of the Old Covenant from the Old Testament, it will help you understand the new and better covenant that we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Now, there is an awesome book uh, that uh, I highly, highly recommend uh, you to get. It's called The Miracle of the Scarlet Thread, and it's by Richard Booker, B-O-O-K-E-R, The Miracle of the Scarlet Thread. If you don't have that in your library, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a book solely about the blood covenant, 
And what he does, and the reason it's called the miracle of the scarlet thread is because the scarlet thread is what unites the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, and, you know, this is absolutely awesome about the Word of God and how, you know, the, the Bible was literally written by people on three continents in a span of thousands of years, okay, in three different languages, but yet there is a, the miracle of the Bible is that there is this common theme woven throughout the entire scripture, and he calls it the scarlet thread, and scarlet, of course, being red. Uh, it, it is the, the, the total truth and laying out of what Jesus was coming to do and how that is woven all throughout the Old Testament. And then, of course, it's, it's played out before us in the New Testament. And so it's absolutely awesome. But he wrote this, and he, I want to read this little paragraph to you. He said, you see, God has planned that in his own appointed time, he would prepare for himself a body just like ours and become one of us. Since he is God, he naturally knew everything he would do when he became one of us. He knew where he would be born. He knew by what name he would be called. He knew everything about the details of his life. He even knew that he would die. Therefore, he painted the, the shadow of himself in the Old Testament so that everybody would recognize him when he arrived on the scene. This is how the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. It is a picture of a person. Now, let me uh, stop, and, and I'll read the next section in just a second. I remember when I worked for um, a meeting planning company, an event planning company, and we did large conventions all across the country. And very rarely, but every now and then, it wasn't my primary responsibility. We had a group that did this, but occasionally if everybody was spread too thin, I might have to go to the airport to pick up somebody. And oftentimes it might be, you know, someone on the client's team. Uh, most of the celebrities we picked up, you know, you kind of knew who they were, so they were easy to recognize. But, you know, if I went to the airport and I was, uh, you know, assigned to pick up John Doe or Sally Jones or whoever it might be, and I had never met them before, I have no clue as to what they look like. And of course, this was pre 9-11. So back in that day, you know, you could go to the gate and, and, and meet people as they got directly off the plane. So what I would have to do sometimes if I had no idea what this person looked like or, you know, anything to describe them, I'd have to do one of two things. I'd either have to make a sign and stand there with the sign that's had their name on it, look stupid and, you know, and just wait for them to come to me. And, uh, you know, but sometimes that's not practical because, you know, how people come off the airplane, there might be a lot of people coming off at the same time and they don't see you. So what I would have to do is go to somebody who knew them and knew what they look like and get them to describe them to me so that I could recognize them when they got off the plane. And so this is exactly what God was doing in the Old Testament. He was giving a picture of Jesus so that when Jesus got off the plane, so to speak, the people that were supposed to receive him would know what he looked like and could greet him appropriately. Uh, Mr. Booker goes on and he says this, isn't this what we do if we're going to meet someone we whom we had never seen, uh, who had never seen us before? Why, we would describe ourselves in great detail and even decide beforehand where we could meet. That way, the person looking for our coming would recognize us when we show up. Now, here's the unfortunate thing. Jesus showed up to his own people, and because they weren't looking for him in the old covenant, they didn't recognize him when he showed up. They were more focused on the rules, regulations, and traditions of the Old Testament and forgot what the whole message of the Old Testament was about. And so when Jesus showed up, his own people did not recognize him. And so unfortunately, uh, that laid the groundwork where, you know, he had to, oh, of course, he died for everyone, but uh Fortunately for us Gentiles, it caused the, the, the church to be born and Gentiles to be reached. 
So, but that's what the Old Testament is designed to do is to paint that picture of Jesus so that we can more accurately recognize him. You know, one of the biggest things you can do as a believer in your walk with the Lord is learn to know God, not know about God, know God. And the only way that you're going to be able to know God is you're going to have to learn his ways. You're going to have to learn um about him to a degree so that you can identify him when he shows up in your life. And, and, you know, we're not running around going, well, I sure wish God would speak to me or, or I wish God would do this or that when the whole time God's been trying to show up in your life and manifest himself to you in your life. But, but we didn't know what it looked like. And so we missed it. And so that's what the purpose of the old and new covenant is all about. So let me give you in relation to this, some things I've covered before, but just uh, three things that will help you in Bible translation and interpretation so that it will help you in your own study, okay? So number one is this. When you're reading through the Old Testament, always pay attention to who is doing the talking and how credible they are as a source of information, okay? Now, this may surprise you, the Bible is the truth, but not every statement in the Bible is a true statement, okay? And I'm not trying to give you a tongue twister there. Um, let me give you, you know, a couple of examples. The Bible is not literally true in the sense that every statement is a statement of truth. The Bible is inspired by God, and it is truly, insta uh, truly stated but it is not, excuse me, but every statement in it is not necessarily the truth. You must consider the source. Let me give you an example. You remember in Jesus' ministry, uh, the, the religious leaders called him uh, of the devil. They said he cast demons out by Beelzebub, the father of demons. Okay, now it's true that they said that, but is that a true statement? Of course not. No, it's we know Jesus was not even associated. They're not even friends with the devil. All right. So let me let me give you another one. You know, Satan said in Ezekiel and Isaiah that he was going to exalt his throne above God's throne. Now it's true that he said that, but is that a true statement? No, that was never going to happen. Not not in a million years was that ever going to take place. So you have to look at the source of what is being said. Who is doing the talking, and are they a credible source? Okay. So let me give you a you know an example just to jar your thinking a little bit. You know when you read some things that are said in the Old Testament by kings or or leaders who were idolatrous. Uh, you know, like King Ahab and Jezebel, you know, some of the wicked things that they said and did, okay? Then you look at the things that Jesus said and did. It, they're both true that they're in the Bible, but who are you going to believe? Who is the credible source? Jesus is, okay? You're not, it, it, it's true that, that Ahab and Jezebel said and did those things, but if I'm going to look to somebody about a source for as a source about my relationship with God, it's not going to be those two, okay? It's going to be Jesus. So that's what I mean. You have to, when you're looking at the scripture, you have to look at who is talking and how credible of a, they are as a source of information. Let me give you one more. You know, the in the book of Job, Job said this. He said, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to remember the full quote, but he said this, in essence, uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, it's true that he said that, okay, so that implies that, that God was the one that brought the, the destruction in his life. God's the one that killed his family. God's the one that destroyed his farm. God's the one that did all of that. So, 
that is truly stated. But then Jesus shows up in John 10, 10, and he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. So who are we going to believe in their description about God, Job or Jesus? Well, I'm going to go with Jesus. Jesus is the most credible source on information about God. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about. You have to pay attention to those things as to whether you can put the full weight of what they are saying as being truth, or is it just true that they said what they said? Okay, here's number two. There is a law in the scripture called the, the law of first mentions or the rule of first mentions, okay? There is the rule of first mentions. And what this means is that if it is a spiritual law or principle that God wants you to base your life on, you're going to find it woven throughout from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Let me say it to you another way. God never changes his mind in the sense of, he. you'll never hear God say this, boy, I never thought of that, okay? He won't do it. Or you'll never hear him say something like, man, I'm going to have to redo that because I didn't do it right the first time, okay? No, God has the best idea the first time around, always, okay? So if there is a principle that God wants us to live by, you're going to find it consistently all throughout the Bible. You know, let me give you, a, 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 for instance, an example of this. You know, there's a law in the, in the Bible that says this, you will reap what you sow. No matter what it is, you will reap what you sow. Now, we can find that principle established in the book of Genesis and we see it all the way up throughout the Old Testament up until and including the New Testament. You know, uh, God told Noah after the flood was over, he said, for as long as there's, uh, you know, daylight and, and all those things, you know, I, I forgot what exactly the parameters were, but he said there will always be seed time and harvest. Okay, so this was a principle that was established in the beginning, because it was a, the right concept, the right idea, and God came up with that, and it never changes throughout the, the entire Bible. So it is a principle that we can live and base our lives on today, okay? Now, there is what you might think an exception to this, and, and let me explain. Maybe exception is not the right word. Maybe an addendum. <laughs> Let me say that, okay? Here's number three, okay? You cannot use marginal revelation to interpret a greater revelation. In other words, you cannot use something that you have a little bit of light on to interpret something that you have a whole lot of revelation on, okay? Let me... Uh, let me give you an example. There's a lot of people that try and interpret the New Testament by looking through the lens of the Old Testament. What you should do is interpret the Old Testament by looking through the lens of the New Testament. As I described to you before, you can't take the Old Testament and use that as your parameter, your, your template, so to speak, to interpret the New Testament. You have to use the New Testament as your template, your parameters to interpret the Old Testament, okay? So as I said to you, Old Testament saints did not have the benefit that you and I have of being on this side of the cross, being on this side of the death, burial, and resurrection. Again, they were all looking forward to that. You and I, being on this side of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, are looking back on those Old Testament things. So there are things that they could not see that you and I are able to see because we have the benefit of being on this side of the cross. 
All right. Does that make sense to you? In other words, let me, let me give you this. As we study the blood covenant, you're going to find out there's going to be a lot of connecting of the dots for things in the Old Testament as to why God instructed certain things to happen where sacrifices are concerned, where, uh, you know, even things like how the children of Israel were to camp in the wilderness. Certain groups were supposed to be in certain places. Well, if you're in the Old Testament, you're not going to be able to understand why God did that. But in the New Testament, you can understand why God did that because it's explained in the New Testament. In other words, the greater revelation is in the New Testament. Does that make sense to you? So you can <laughs> interpret the New Testament um, through the lens of the Old Testament. All right, now, the blood covenant is the common thread that runs throughout both Testaments, and it is a covenant established in the blood of Jesus. All right? Now, if you don't understand, and I'm just saying this in a general sense, if you don't gain revelation of the blood covenant, you're going to have a hard time understanding the Bible. So what we're talking about over the next few weeks, is going to help you connect the dots between the Old Testament and New Testament, and I promise you, it's going to help you understand why God did some things that he did and said some things that he said. It will help you understand why Jesus did and said certain things that he did and said. It's all done in the context of that blood covenant. So that's why we're going to take the time and looking at this. Now, after Adam fell in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, okay, when you see God getting involved in the lives of people, there's something that is always involved with that, and it's called the shedding of blood. Before Adam sinned, Adam could walk with God in the cool of the day. They had fellowship with one another. They visited with one another. But unfortunately, when Adam sinned, that changed, that dynamic changed, their relationship changed. And therefore, from that point forward, every interaction with mankind, blood had to be involved with it. Now, why? Well, we're going to find that out. We're going to look at this, okay? Let me describe God to you, okay? And you know this, but listen to this anyway. God is holy. Man is not, okay? God is a holy God. There is no impurity about him whatsoever. There's no darkness. There's no sin. There's nothing evil. There's nothing corrupt about him whatsoever. After Adam's sin, man is sinful. Man is dead. Man is dark, man is corrupted. Everything that you can think of that came about because of Adam's sin, now all of that comes into play with God's interaction. Now, what the Bible teaches us is that a holy God cannot fellowship with sinful man in his current state. There has to be something that comes into play, and that is. In the Old Testament, the shedding of blood of animals, bulls and goats, and so forth. In the New Testament, it's the shedding of blood, but it's the blood of a man. His name is the Lord Jesus. Okay? Now, why is blood, um, you know, so so paramount to all of this? You know, a lot of times we we look at this, the reference to blood and the blood covenant and so forth and so on, with our Western mindset. You know, I don't know about you, but um, I don't like the sight of blood. I don't, uh, I, you know, I might be able to tolerate my shed, um, you know, if I cut myself or something. But Lord, I, I, I mean, I get queasy and, you know, I probably come close to passing out if I see somebody else bleeding. Uh, or, you know, I get queasy when I see roadkill. All right. I just, I, and my hat goes off to to medical people 
particularly ER people that deal with that on the regular basis, because our Western mindset is just different where blood is concerned. You know, you ever had a, a child um, you know, that fell down, scraped their 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 knee or hurt themselves some way, and and you know they get back up and they're all right. You know, they kind of realize something had happened, but then when they look down and they see blood coming out of that scrape, that's when the weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth starts. Okay, why? Because it's the sight of the blood that says to, to people, this is bad. All right. This is, this is a big deal. And even children think about it that way. All right. So go back with me to Genesis chapter nine, please. Genesis chapter nine. And uh, I want to look at a couple of verses there. Genesis chapter nine, verses three and four. Now this is uh, right at the end of, of the flood knowing his family are coming out of the ark. And uh, well, this is the verse I was talking about earlier in Genesis 8.22. He said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So those are laws that God put into motion. But in, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, the Lord said this, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Oh, let me read that to you again. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, God never told them you can't eat meat. What he told them was, don't eat meat with the blood still in it. Now, why, God? Why, why is that such a big deal? Okay, well, let, go over with me to the book of Leviticus, and we'll see why. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Leviticus 17. Verse 10, Leviticus 17, verse 10. God is giving instructions to the children of Israel, and he's having to reiterate some things that he had established in Genesis, but he gives them this again, Leviticus 17 and verse 10. He says this, and whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So eating blood is a bad thing. Verse 11, why, God, why is eating blood such a bad thing? No, verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So in God's mind, listen to this carefully, in God's heart and mind, blood is equal to life. Blood is equal to life. The Bible states that the life of an animal or a person is in the blood. Blood is the life of that animal. So what God is saying, I have no problem with you eating the meat from that animal, but I do not want you partaking of the life of that animal. Okay? So, and, and one of the reasons being is because the culture in which the children of Israel were coming into was very evil, very idolatrous, and, and uh, they would often drink blood. They would do horrible things like that. So God was wanting them to steer clear of that. But the main thing that I want you to see is that the reason that blood is so important where God's relationship with man is concerned is because in God's heart, Blood equals life, okay? So when we're talking about the blood covenant, we'll describe this more in, in detail as time progresses, but at, when you're talking about the blood covenant, what God is, is looking at is the mingling of two lives, not two bloods, but two lives, okay? This is why God takes this so seriously. If you think about it, 
Without your blood, you are nothing. You can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have your blood, that money is useless. Okay. Uh, why? Because the life is in the blood. Without your blood, your car is useless. Your job is useless. Your house is useless. Everything you have is useless without the blood. The life is in the blood. The blood represents all of who you are. Without blood, you have no life. Okay. So let's talk about this word covenant for just a moment. The word covenant means literally the shedding of blood. Now we'll talk again about the particulars and lessons to come. Okay. So we're going to look at why is this so involved with God's relationship with man? Okay. Um, go over with me to Hebrews chapter nine, please. Hebrews chapter nine. Now, when you think about the cross, the cross of Jesus and what Jesus did for us on that cross, yes, he was beaten. Yes, he, his flesh was torn with the crown of thorns, everything that he endured. But the greatest thing that he probably did was the giving of his life, which means the giving of his blood. He allowed his blood to be poured out for you and for me. So when he makes statements like, nobody can take my life unless I give it, think about blood is involved in that. Okay. Because the blood, the life is in the blood. All right. So Without the Bible, the Bible clearly establishes this principle. Without the shedding of blood, there is no payment, pardon, or forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no payment, pardon, or forgiveness of sin. So if the life is in the blood, then a life is required to pay the penalty for sin. All right, you're there in Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verse 20. I'm going to read this to you out of the New Living. Just follow along, and, and uh, if you're looking at whatever translation you're looking at. But it says this, Then he said, This blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he, Jesus, sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. Now I'm going to stop right there and let me explain to you. When Moses was given the instructions for the tabernacle in the Old Testament and was given the, the, the blueprints, so to speak, of, of how to lay it out, what it was to look like, what it was to contain, all the utensils, the way God did that, and the scripture actually says that God let Moses see the heavenly tabernacle. So in heaven are all the things that were duplicated in that earthly tabernacle. There's a holy place. There's a mercy seat. Uh, there's incense that comes up before the throne. There's all of those things. All of that was a, the earthly one was a duplicate of the heavenly one. Now, before 
people's sin could be covered by blood by the high priest in the Old Testament, the high priest had to take the blood of one sacrifice and go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle everything with the blood of that sacrifice to temporarily purify it so that it could pay the price for the people's sin once a year. When Jesus shed his blood, and, and I can show you this in Scripture, maybe we'll look at it at another time, but Jesus carried his own blood into the heavenly holy of holies and sprinkled the heavenly utensils with his blood, and so his blood is in the presence of God all the time, okay? Why? Because he was purifying and cleansing the way for man to be able to have a relationship with God. Now, the good news is Jesus only had to do it once. The Old Testament high priest had to do it every year. But this scripture says for in verse 24, for Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth, who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age, the Old Testament, to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, after that comes judgment, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all those who eagerly await him. All right, so what am I saying? The blood just as in the Old Testament, was necessary for the people to be able to have any interaction with God, the blood, except that was blood of animals, the blood of Jesus did the same thing, but on a much, much higher level in the sense of it was his blood, not a substitute. It was God's blood that was shed, not an animal, not a bull, not a goat, not a substitute, it was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed. All right, now, um, the covenant is the very foundation of our contact with God and his contact with us. Now, I want you to go back. I'm sorry to keep flip-flopping, but go back to the book of Genesis again. And I want to show you something. Genesis chapter 3. Now, this is where Adam's sin, okay? So let's read verses 1 through 7, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. It says this, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Which, by the way, that's not what God said, but that's what she thought. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And then when Adam who was way far off working, came home from the office and found out what Eve had done, there was trouble in the Adam and Eve household. Okay, no, that's not what happened, all right? It says she took of the fruit and ate, and she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. He was standing right there when that whole conversation took place and did nothing about it. He could have stopped it. And he didn't. That's where the treason came in. Then the eyes, after they both ate, both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together 
and they made themselves covering. Now, why is this so interesting? So we have Adam and Eve, they sin. Their fellowship with God is now broken because of the sin. You remember when God showed up and wanted to talk with Adam? Uh, the Bible says that they hid themselves because they were naked, and God said, who told you you were naked? And so forth and so on, all right? Now, if you drop down to verse 20, okay, so let's backtrack. Their fellowship with God is broken. In order for fellowship to be put back together, what has to take place? What is woven all throughout the Scripture? Blood has to be shed, all right? Now, what was Adam and Eve's answer? It says in verse 7 that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering, and that's what people do. People, religion, and people try to hide their sin and try and get right with God with their own doing, with their own making stuff, and it doesn't work. Why? Because there's no shedding of blood. Now look what happened in verse 20. And it says, and Adam, and so God deals with Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent. In verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made clothes of skin and clothed them. And the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, et cetera, et cetera. Now we have a tendency to just gloss right over that. But what did God do in order to cover their sin? He took the skins of animals and put those on them, made clothes for them out of the skins. Well, think about it. Use your noggin for a moment. In order to get the skin of an animal, the animal has to die. And if the animal died and was skinned, blood was shed. So this is the very first incident in the, the, the scope of time in the Bible that we know about where blood was shed to cover man's sin. And look who did it. God did. God is the one that initiated it, all right? God is the one that was uh, the one that was willing to uh, offer the sacrifice. Adam was ashamed and afraid after he sinned. He no longer possessed the faith and confidence to stand before God because of sin. When sin is present, shame, guilt, and condemnation always accompany it. So what does man do? He tries in his own strength and ability to cover for his sin and shame. What did God do? He sacrificed and shed the blood of innocent animals to clothe or cover the nakedness of sin. Now, we see here, as I said, the very first time that blood was shed in order to cover the sin of mankind. So this is what I was telling you about called the rule or law of first mentions. It was established here, and this principle bears out all the way through the entire Bible. Now, oftentimes we just gloss over 20 and 21 without really paying attention to the details, but we understand now that God is the one that, that already, I mean, just as soon as Adam sinned, began the process of addressing and covering man's sin, but how did he do it? By the shedding of the blood of innocent animals, all right? And this is, you know, many, many, many years before the law was ever given and, and the, the ritual sacrifices were instituted, okay? Now, let me say this to you. God's plan was that man always be clothed with the glory of God. That's the way Adam wore the glory of God as, as clothes. He was clothed with it. That's how come he didn't know he was naked, all right? And that's hard for us to wrap our brains around, but it's, it's the truth. After the fall, 
that clothing was lost. And for the first time, man was truly naked before God. God shed blood to provide a temporary covering for Adam and Eve. Now, let me say this to you. All of this process, which began in Genesis chapter 3, goes all the way through. And here's the cool thing, and I'm going to jump way ahead. Because of the blood of Jesus, spiritually speaking, you and I are once again clothed with the glory of God. Literally, when we all get to heaven and we have glorified bodies, we're going to be fully clothed with the glory of God, just like Adam was before he sinned. Now, this all comes about because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the redemption that he bought and paid for. Without his shedding of blood, you and I will never be able to experience that. But because he did and because he paid that price, you and I will be able to walk in. Some of it we can walk in now, but we will walk in the fullness of what Adam experienced before his fall, before the sin. Okay, so a covenant is simply an agreement. It's the strongest agreement and contract that, that two parties can make. Okay. Um, a blood covenant, and I don't want you, I, I hesitate to use the word contract because I don't want you to think business deal. A blood covenant is far deeper than a business contract. A blood covenant is how two people enter into the closest, most enduring, and sacred pacts with one another. And I'll say this to you, okay, as I begin to close, only death can terminate that contract, that covenant, okay? So when we see the, the covenants in the Old Testament, the only thing that could break that covenant, and this is what, what two covenant partners would swear to each other, is the only thing that can break this covenant is if you die or I die, okay? So when you see people in the Old Testament, like, Jonathan and David or others that made covenant with one another. They swore to each other and there was shedding of blood and that blood would bond those two together. And the only thing that could separate that and break that covenant would be if one or the other or both parties died in that covenant relationship. Okay. So in the coming weeks, here's what we're going to study. We're going to see the covenant and how it is spilled out and, and instructed to come about, come about in the Old Testament. And we're going to see how it was fulfilled in the New Testament. I, I, I can't wait. I, I love this stuff because here's what it does for you as it did for me. You know, and I often say this, Jesus did not do accidental and he didn't do random. There is a reason for everything that he said and did. And especially, it will become clear to you all the things that he did leading up to going to the cross. And, and there was a reason for it, and it all has to do with covenant. We will learn exactly what the covenant is, how a, a, a blood covenant ceremony would, would have looked like in the Old Testament, and uh, we would see how this would come about, and uh, then we will see how covenant is what bound Abraham and God together. Now that when we talk about the Abrahamic covenant, the good news is that covenant through the Lord Jesus is still in force today. The difference is you and I have been allowed to be engrafted into that covenant. So all of the covenant benefits that were promised to Abraham now belong to us, according to Galatians chapter 3, okay? So, I can't wait to get into this. All this has been an introduction tonight, and my time is all gone, but I'm telling you, this will help the Bible come alive to you, understanding the blood covenant, because it's the basis of our entire relationship with God, 
And I am so thoroughly convinced that one of the reasons that God wants me to teach on this, and it's, I looked, it's been almost two and a half years since I've taught on this. Um, the reason that God wants to stir our hearts where this is concerned is because there are things that you and I could be receiving and walking in as covenant partners in a covenant relationship with God that we're not walking in. And, and when our eyes get open to those things, the first thing you're going to say is, why haven't I been walking in this? And then the second thing is, I'm going to walk in some of this stuff. All right. So you're, we're going to see this and I'm excited for you to be able to understand this. And, and by the way, for those of you who have heard me teach on this before, uh, there's going to be some new things. So, uh, you know, this is the, the revelation on this grows and grows and grows. So stay with it. All right. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.